Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We live in this weird time where people think claiming offense makes them virtuous. And oftentimes people claim offense when they're not even the person who even has like a, they're not even in the group that they're sort of claiming to be offended on behalf of. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Balancing Acts. In this conversation, I talk to rapper, podcast host, author and creative entrepreneur, Zuby. Hello, I'm Steve Whiteley and welcome to Balancing Acts, a series of conversations with an array of creatives. We talk about their journey, the struggles they faced whilst progressing their career, strategies they use to unlock their creativity, how they balance their career with their personal lives, what impact this has had on their mental health and lots more. Zubi was born in England but raised in Saudi Arabia and is a graduate of Oxford University. As a rapper, he's sold over 25,000 albums independently. He's performed in eight countries and achieved over 10 million online views. Zuby has over 500,000 followers online. He's featured on the Joe Rogan Experience, BBC, Sky News, Fox News. This was a fascinating conversation. Zuby's got very specific views on, on certain things, and um, whether you agree with him or not, it was great to sit down with him and have a bit of discussion course in a very I would say mature way and it's something that I'm keen to do more of on the podcast I think it's refreshing to converse with people who have different uh, opinions so yeah I really welcome this conversation so without further ado over to Zuby so welcome Zuby hey Steve how are you doing I'm very well how are you it's really great to see you we were just saying before we started that we last met in person about a decade ago. Yeah, that's crazy. I can't believe it's been that long. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, <laughs> we were speaking, obviously, at the time, in a former life, I worked in the music industry, and mm-hmm. um, we, we met about your, your career as a rapper. And yeah. I remember at the time when we met, thinking, oh, this guy's got serious drive and work ethic. Because I think even back then, you were selling independent numbers on quite a big scale, considering yeah. you didn't really have a team behind you back then. Yep, I still don't have a team behind me, but um, is it still is it still you doing everything? It's still me, man. It's wow. still me. Everything you've seen, it's still me. Take take me back, because you know from the outset you look at a guy who studied at Oxford University, and um, I guess you could say 
you would think that it's not the sort of person that would then go on to establish a rap career. Yeah. Was that always the plan from the off or was that something that occurred to you after you graduated? So I started rapping when I was at Oxford. I started okay. rapping in my first year of university um, and I released my first album in my second year of uni. Okay. So that was, once, once I put out my first album, Commercial Underground, that was the, that was kind of the light bulb moment of, okay, this is something I can, I can do as more, more than a hobby um, because pe- people were buying it, you know, um, within the first couple of months, you know, I sold a few hundred copies of it. That, that, my first album sold 3,000 copies, um, wow. and that was totally independent. That was just me traveling around, you know, going out on the, the high street, Corn Market Street in Oxford, yeah, yeah. traveling into London, Leicester Square, going to a few different cities and just standing out there on the street with a backpack all day, playing my music to people and selling it. And so once I realized, oh, you know, people are willing to pay me for my music, then that sparked the idea of, okay, this is something I can do as more, more than just a hobby. So actually, after I graduated from Oxford, I took one year out before um, I moved into the corporate world. I took one year out. I released my second album, The Unknown Celebrity. And I just spent one year just gigging, traveling around the UK, going up north, going, like, going to all these different cities I'd never been to before, and just uh, promoting and selling my two albums out there on the street. Then I moved to London, and I started working in the corporate world as a management consultant. I did that for three years whilst juggling my music stuff on the side. And then November 2011... So coming up, to, coming up to the decade now, that was when I, I left my, the corporate world. So I, I became a full-time musician in November 2011. Um, so all that time, I was just grinding, putting out releases, touring in the UK and abroad, just, just hustling, just working every single day on, on that dream, trying to grow my audience, trying to cultivate my audience, et cetera. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just grown slowly on organically i started doing the the pop-up shops with my friend shouto from 2014 to 2018 that was actually my primary source of income doing the pop-up shops so going to different shopping centers all around the uk and uh, promoting and selling my music and merchandise t-shirts hats hoodies all of that and then um early 2019 i had a video which had nothing to do with my music go viral and that exposed me to millions of people actually millions of people um and yeah that was a catalyst so, I mean, so super inspiring. Firstly, do you think that your time um, working as a management consultant informed your approach to your rap career thereafter in terms of the importance of perhaps working in a different industry and learning a certain skill set and then applying that to you, to your career as a, a creative entrepreneur and rapper? I think a little bit. I think it helped with the, I mean, I think I was already doing things pretty professionally. Okay. Certainly compared to my peers, you know, even when I was out on the street, people used to just have like burn CDRs that they'd write on with a pen. And I was always the one who had like a proper looking CD. Yeah. Right? And actually some artists used to sort of laugh at me because I went through the whole process of getting my CDs to look proper, like something you could buy an HMV. And I was always like, from the beginning, I was like, no, I want my stuff to look, I want it to look pro. I don't want to just be out there selling, you know, some people even would have the CDs on the spindle. Right. And they'd just be selling the CDs. All, and I'm like, yeah. no, man, my stuff has to look good. So I think um, in terms of the professional aspect, I think my uh, my professional career, my corporate career helped with that. You know, stuff like even stuff like writing emails, knowing how to contact people who are relatively senior or, you know, doing cold outreach, um, how you present yourself and certain ways of thinking and problem solving, because I was a management consultant, which is all based around helping people solve problems. Mm. So throughout my year, I've come across, sorry, throughout my career, 
come across all sorts of obstacles and still do like every day, every week, there's new obstacles as an entrepreneur. There's no clear blueprint of like, okay, here, this is what you do. So I'm constantly problem solving. So I think if my, you know, not just my corporate career, but a lot of people ask me if my computer science degree helps me with my music. And uh, in terms of the direct practical stuff, it, it doesn't at all. But I think the, the problem solving ability does certainly come into play and the willingness to persevere and just stick with something, even when it's difficult, even when it seems quite insurmountable at times. I think all of that has really helped to shape me and to just strengthen my mindset and my mentality and my grit. Um, you know, when people are seeing what I'm doing now, like, I mean, you've been aware of me for longer, but a lot of people don't realize how long the journey has been. People don't realize I put out my first album 15 years ago, right? So people are thinking, oh, this guy just sort of popped up on social media and just uh, did one thing and got all these like, no, you know, even with the way I deal with it now, right? Having, I mean, I've got over half a million followers on my platforms now. And even just having the ability to deal with that, both the positive and the negative, it's been a real slow buildup of just learning how to, how to deal with that. Because even from a mental aspect, I, I know for sure what I get on a week would, would flatten most people, right? It, it would just flatten them because they wouldn't be able to deal with it, right? They'd see some of those DMs, some of those horrible comments, some of this, some of that. And it, it's, it, can, be, it can be quite overwhelming, but you, you develop over time just a very thick skin and an ability to just be like, all right, I'm not going to be too emotionally attached to this and take everything super duper personally. You just learn how to process it in a certain way. Yes, it's almost like quite a stoic approach, um, yeah. not getting too uh, emotionally reactive. Um, and that's something I, w- I want to touch upon and go into a bit more detail in a bit. Just to rewind, you, I know you grew up in Saudi Arabia. And, right. um, and obviously, as you, as, as you said, you went to Oxford University. What was your parents' uh, thoughts and opinions of you then leaving Oxford Uni to, uni to pursue a career in rap? Obviously, you did the management consultancy, but was there any mm-hmm. pushback there from them or were they always supportive from the off? My parents, God bless them, have always been supportive. And it's worth remembering, I did graduate as well, right? It's not like yeah, I, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't drop out of uni. Maybe yeah. if, if I had dropped out of uni to pr- pursue a music career, they, I, know, I know my parents, they would not have been happy with that. But I got my degree. You know, I graduated when I was only 20 years old. Um, so I got my degree, I'm a smart guy and also they, they trust my decision-making and also by the time I went to pursue music full time, I'd already, I'd already put out three releases and been doing it for five years. I'd already sold thousands of albums at this point. So you could prove that it was a working model. Exactly. I was already making money from music before I left my corporate job. I wasn't making a full-time income. Um, but I was making money. I did have a fan base. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like, okay, I'm starting from zero. It wasn't, it wasn't just yeah. like this moonshot of, okay, I'm quitting this and I'm going to start something totally untested and brand new. It was more like, okay, both careers are elevating and they actually started to reach a stage where each one was conflicting with the other. Okay. Right. So I'm supposed to be at my desk by 8.30 AM in the morning and I have a gig opportunity the night before, mm-hmm. maybe in another city. And I have to pick between, all right, either I do the gig and I don't sleep and I'm knackered the next day, or I decline the gig so that I'm fresh and I'm on point for my core. And they they just started clashing with each other too much. And in my heart of hearts, it wasn't a tough decision for me to make. I already knew at that stage what I wanted to do. I didn't know exactly how to pursue being a full-time independent musician, Um, but I had an inkling and I, I knew also, you know, as long as I could keep myself afloat. 
yeah. then I'm okay, right? And I, I'm also aware, like I thought ahead and I thought, you know what? I might not be able to do this in 10 years time mm-hmm. or in 10 years time, this might be a really foolish decision, right? Because maybe I'll have dependents or I'll, I'll also just be so comfortable in this position and with this salary or whatever that taking anything that seems like a risk, um, I might just not be able to do it at that time. So I thought, you know what? Um, I'm, how old was I? No, 23, 24. I was like, all right, cool. Like I'm young. I'm in my, you know, early to mid twenties. Um, I've already got this audience. I've got this fan base. I know how to perform. I've performed in all these different places. What's the worst that can happen, right? The best that can happen is phenomenal, right? But the worst that can happen is I plug at it for a few years and it doesn't go quite as far as I want it to. And I pivot to something different, or I decide to go back to a more traditional career or whatever. Um, at this stage, I don't even like ponder that idea, but I knew that fortunately, you know, thank God I'd never be in a position where I'm out on the street and I'm, I'm destitute and I, I have you know, that, that, that wasn't even a possibility, right? That wasn't even a possibility. So was there any moments along the way where you just thought, oh, I don't know, I don't know if this is going to work or was there any, <laughs> did you have any moments of self doubt? And if so, oh, yeah. how did you overcome them? Because you seem like you've got a very, strong and positive mindset where does that come from man it comes from those moments it comes from those moments i mean look like like most musicians certainly any independent musician has had those gigs where they travel two hours to play a gig and there's like less than 10 people in the audience right Mm -hmm. um or with me like i said i used to just go out and you know i've been out on the street thousands of times i've met hundreds of thousands of people talk to them all personally um you know some people buy most people don't. A lot of people ignore you. Some people insult you. I mean, a year after I left my corporate job, I remember one time I was in, uh, this would have been around 2012, I think. And I was up in Newcastle, I think in November or December, and it was snowing. And so I, I live in Bournemouth at the time, right? And I'm, I'm up in Newcastle. So I'm like six, six hours away from home and it's snowing. I'm freezing. And I'm out there on the street talking to strangers, trying to sell my CDs. And I'm just there like a year ago, I was like, you know, I had JP Morgan as a client. Yeah. I was in management, right? I, right? I, I, was, yeah. I was there, you know, on a particular trajectory, very comfortable, stable, secure, prestigious kind of job. And now I'm out here with a backpack, you know, with my, knowing, knowing I have an Oxford degree and I'm freezing my butt off talking to people, absolute strangers trying to sell them my CDs. And I had a lot of moments like that where I was, you know, days where I was just like, geez, like, you know, oddly enough, I never doubted the big vision, mm-hmm. never doubted the big vision, but I had moments where I was like, geez, man, what am I, number one, what am I doing? And number two, is it supposed to be this hard, right? Mm-hmm. Is it supposed to be this difficult, right? Oh, I had times many over the years. I mean, I'll, 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 be, I'll be real. I mean, 2019 was the first year, keep in mind, I left my job in 2011. 2019 was the first year where I made more money doing what I'm doing now than I used to make, than I was making when I left my corporate job. I can totally relate to that because <laughs> my, my, uh, yeah. my trajectory was quite similar. I worked in commercial property and commercial mm-hmm. property investment for the first three years after university. And then I quit to pursue music and then subsequently comedy and all, all those sort of things. Uh, and yeah, I quit that job. And I was flying in the streets, pissing down with rain, all that yep. sort of stuff for years. Mm-hmm. And it's only taken me, I think, up to, I think this point, which is like 10 years later, where 
similar to you in terms of earnings yeah. it's more than i was earning back then but it's taken this yeah. long yeah and but it feels because- so much better Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. And you know, and it's not just about money, but to give people an idea, that's just give people an idea of the time scale. Yeah. Cause again, I think a lot of people just think like, Oh, boom, it just, it just sort For of sure. happens like that. And it's like, no man, I was barely breaking even, or, you know, making a tiny, tiny profit for many, many years, even at the stage where, you know, quite a lot of people knew me and I was doing a lot of things, but all the money was just going straight back into the music. And, uh, you know, it was up and down. And as someone who relied a lot, yeah. Also remember, the music industry shifted a lot since I started. So back when mm. I started, it was all about CDs. Yeah. All about CDs, right? You know, there were artists just you know, selling crazy numbers of CDs. And then downloading came in, which ate into my earnings quite a mm. bit because people started going, oh, I don't want to buy the CD. Is it on iTunes? And then streaming comes in, which takes another bite out of it, right? Now, suddenly people don't want to buy a CD. They just want to stream. And, you know, I get 10 pounds if you buy my CD. If you stream my whole album, I might get like 10 pence. So, um, you know, that's why I started doing the pop-up shop and I started selling more merchandise and I kept adapting, you know, I had to keep pivoting and adapting. And now, you know, I make a lot of money from, I mean, I've probably got like 10 different sources of income now. Um, but all of that, a lot of that came from, a lot of it came from, you know, innovation from necessity. Mm-hmm. That's what a lot of it was. Um, did you create a business plan along the way? And if so, did you adjust it accordingly? Or were you I made just a business sort of- yeah, I made a business plan, but it's, okay. it, 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 those things it, are just, it, it ended it up nothing like yeah. what I've ended up doing. Well, yeah, obviously. Really. Yeah. And, um, was there anybody that you looked up to? Was there somebody that you saw a bit further ahead of you in the game, maybe in the UK? I don't know because you know, now it's like, as you were saying, the music industry has changed rapidly, but yeah. particularly in the rap game, we look at the grime scene now, it's not uncommon for independent artists such as Stormzy to create their own label and to do it independently. But back then it was a different kettle of fish. Yeah. So was there any, because you were ahead of your time in that respect, was there anybody out there that you looked at? It's like, okay, that's the template. That's what I'm going for. Mm. In the UK, maybe the best template would have been Sway. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sway yeah. was probably the best template in the UK. In the US, I looked at, um, you know, one of my biggest inspirations, of course, is, is Tech Nine, you know, Tech mm-hmm. Nine and Jay-Z. Um, but I, I also looked at what a lot of people, especially in the South, in the South were doing, and a lot of people who are big on the mixtape circuit. Okay. You know, I was seeing artists who were selling, you know, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 independent, right? That's, that's what I was looking at. Um, so, yeah, I was really seeing that. That's, that was excuse me, that was a sort of model I initially based my stuff on, you know, just going out there and talking to people, going to the people direct instead of spending all my time trying to impress executives or trying to get on the radio or trying yeah. to do this, right? Just go straight to the people. Right? Why am I trying to get on the radio anyway? I'm trying to get on the radio so people hear my music and then eventually maybe they buy my music or come to a show. Well, why don't I just cut all that stuff out in the middle and go straight to the person, right? So I learned quickly. Um, I can go out there on any given day. I mean, I... I had days where I would sell, you know, 50 albums in a day. Mm-hmm. I'd also have days where I'd sell five. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> so I, I had some, I had some, some huge successes, right? I remember one day I went to Liverpool and I think the best I ever did in one day, in one afternoon, about 12 PM till 5.30 PM, I sold 66 albums in Liverpool. I remember that day very, very well. I just, I just had all this cash. I went into the bank like three times that day and I just kept coming in with piles of money. They were like, what is this guy doing? Um, so yeah, so, you know, you'd have those moments, but then you'd also have the days where, you know, it's a, 
it's a Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> Nobody is out. There's certainly not many young people about who were the main people who used to buy my albums. And, you know, you're just kind of standing there milling around in a city that you're not familiar with and where you have no friends. So, you know, all of that stuff, though, especially in hindsight, is it strengthens you. You know, it really, really strengthens you. So a lot of the mindset and determination and everything that people see and sort of admire in me now, it came from, it came, that, that was like, that was the reps in the gym, right? Those, those were the sure. reps. Those it's like, reps. you know, people looking at you and thinking, oh, he's an overnight success. You know, in mm -hmm. terms of your social media following, it's like, no, that took years and years and years to build. It's the yeah. same with your mindset. The only way you can develop that mindset is from going through all those knockbacks and failures. Yep. And then what's, you know, I think what impressed me as well about you is that as a result of that, you obviously have a inner confidence, but because of all the knockbacks or, you know, because of all the grind along the way, it does, um, it gives you a level of humbleness that yes. I think would be difficult to have had you have, had you had, or not you personally, but when people have success very early on their career without mm -hmm. experiencing failure, I think it's a different type of confidence. Yep. Yep. And also, and I think the success is, you know, I think it's, it's kind of easy come, easy go. Mm. Um, you know, most artists that I look at, I mean, man, I've been in the music game for a while. I mean, I've seen a lot of people come and go. I've seen a lot of artists blow up and there's, there are people who I was like, man, you know, this per, these, these guys or this person blew up in like, one or two years, right? And they just sort yep. of leapfrogged everybody. But so many of those people, like they've totally fizzled out, right? They're not there anymore. But actually the people who had the long grind, they tend to stick around much longer. You know, I even, you know, I remember when I had more Twitter, I remember when I had more Twitter followers than Ed Sheeran. <laughs> I, remember, I remember when I could DM Ed Sheeran on Twitter and he'd, he'd and, you know, we, we, we'd chat on Twitter. Um, and he had a long grind. I saw the process. I've been aware of Ed Sheeran since like, boy, I don't know, 2009 or something like I, I, I clocked him early. And so he put in that same grind, you know, by the time he blew up, he'd probably already played at least 500 gigs, right? He'd already done all of this stuff. So you get that sustained success. Like Ed Sheeran is someone who I can imagine in his sixties and if he wants to, in his sixties, he can still be a successful musician. Whereas you have the other person who comes out, they make one song, boom, viral hit. And then two years later, oh, people are like, oh, you know, they're showing up on their lists of, oh, what happened to, what happened to that guy? And in some ways, you know, maybe it's better to have one big hit and fade away than it is to have nothing at all. But I think it's much better to have a slower burn, but one that actually lasts and where you've built a true audience. Because I think in music and lots of other things as well, actually, but especially music is you want to build an audience and who, is, who are fans of you. Mm. it's very possible in music, especially for people to simply become, because you have a lot of music, there's like different categories of music fans. And the big danger of someone blowing up too quickly or just having like one viral hit is people become a fan of the song or they become a fan of just what's popular, mm -hmm. right? So that artist doesn't really have proper fans, right? Those fans will move on very, very quickly if they're no longer hot or if they don't have a hot single at the time, et cetera. Whereas there are other artists who have a fan base where it's just like people are just fans of the artist. So you're willing to buy their album or go see them live or whatever, even if they don't have a hot single on the radio, even mm. if they haven't, you know, got all this publicity or whatever, because you genuinely, you genuinely like that artist. So you're willing to just support them. Um, and I think it's not something people tend to think about a lot, but it's something I've really observed. And, 
and, and I think all of us can do that sometimes, right? I'm sure you, there are certain songs. There, there will be artists out there who you're not really a fan of the artist or the band, but you, you're a fan of the song. You, yeah. like that one, you like that one song, but you wouldn't buy merchandise or you wouldn't really be bothered to go and pay for a ticket or whatever. But then there's other artists where they could not drop an album for two years or three years or five years. And then you hear, oh, wow, they're playing in my city and you want to go see them. Mm. Right. So that's the audience that I really want to build, especially now that I've expanded beyond music as well. And one thing that's been really cool with that is I'm at a stage now where I can put out, I can kind of do whatever I want. And there are people who will support it largely because they like me. So I released my first book in 2019, uh, my fitness book, Strong Advice. That's now sold several thousand copies. And, you know, a lot of people bought it because they specifically wanted the fitness advice in the book. But a lot of people also bought it because it was like, yo, Zuby released a book. I want to buy mm-hmm. Zuby's book because it's, it's Zuby, right? Um, or also because they feel like I've just given them so much positivity and inspiration and benefit in their life that they're just willing and happy to support whatever I put out, whether it's a, a hat or a t-shirt or a CD or a book or whatever else may come in the future. So it's really beautiful to be in that position. And I'm glad it took a long time to get there. Um, For sure. I mean, developing that relationship with your fans in itself is a full-time job. I I read one of your recent tweets saying, you know, for 10 years now, you've been responding to DMs and messages from fans, et cetera. That in itself, you know, that takes a lot of effort and dedication. Mm. And I would imagine is going to be reciprocated with uh, their loyalty towards you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, I, with me, everything's with me. I'm just, I'm just very authentic and I genuinely, I genuinely care about my fans. I genuinely, I, I care about people in general, right? You know, there'll be people who, I, th- I think the, the big difference between like the Zuby fans and the Zuby haters is that my fans understand that. And my haters think the opposite, right? Right. Okay. <laughs> right? They, they've okay. somehow convinced themselves that like, I don't care about other people and everything I do is for myself. And I'm, ar- you know, my haters will say I'm arrogant and that I'm selfish and that I'm hateful. My fans will say that I'm incredibly generous and kind and I really care about people. And like, it's very obvious because like they interact with me. They see, I've, wow, yo, this guy's got hundreds of thousands of followers and he still takes a moment out to reply to me. You know, I appreciate that. And, you know, with me, it's not, it's not like a strategy or a tactic. It's just, yo, I, I appreciate you. Like, thank you. Right. Mm-hmm. My most, my, the, the, the word I write and say the most every day is thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, Hey man, I guess, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Like, like I just all the time, all the time, because I just, I do appreciate it. And also it, like I said, it's been such a low, slow grind. It's been such a slow burn that, you also, you also connect with people on a deeper level. I mean, mm. I've, been, I've been to several of my fans' weddings. Oh, wow. You know, right? I've been invited to my I fans' weddings. When I travel to different cities, I mean, when I was in the States in 2019, I was in all these cities I'd never been to before. And I could, number one, I could do meetups in every city. And after that, I, I could, you know, people would just let me stay in their houses. It was just like, yo, oh, you're, you're, you're in this city? Cool. Just like, come stay with us. Like, we've got a spare bed. Like, you know, I don't even need to get a hotel or an Airbnb or whatever because people are just like, yo, like, I see you're in the city. Like, come, like, have lunch with me and my family. Like, you can stay here as long as you want. And it's just like, wow, that's like a deeper, at that stage, it's almost like the line between fans and supporters and friends. It, it all, it kind of gets very blurry even. Um, but it's just beautiful to have that and to know, oh, wow, like, people appreciate me and what I'm doing so much mm. that they're willing to um, just kind of literally open 
open their doors for me and say like, you know, come on in. And, yeah. and that's in different countries, different cities everywhere. It's amazing. That's a beautiful thing. And I guess that positive uh, feeling that you're describing, the connection, et cetera, that's in part reflected by your lyrics and, and the nature of your music is obviously very, very positive. And it's different, I guess, from what rap is historically associated with. Yeah. I'm interested, what, what do you think the psychology is behind why people are so drawn to the glamorization of violence in, in, in rap in general, as mm. opposed to here's someone who's just putting out positive messages. Because yeah. if we look, you know, you think about the NWA and, and it's really a pattern that continued from then onwards. This huge white suburban audience just mm -hmm. bought into this genre of music that they had no connection with on a day-to-day -day basis. So why do you think people are compelled towards those kind of lyrics and, and tones? That's a fantastic question. And it's something I've been pondering probably for almost two decades. Um, so I have, a, I have a couple fairly deep answers to these, actually. I think um, on one hand, I think it goes way beyond music and people are drawn to negativity, right? Why mm. is most of the news negative? Why are most of the things you see go viral outrageous or controversial or people watch the news and the news is so negative. I mean, I, I sold my TV 12 years ago and I don't regret it. Um, but when I watch the news, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at how negative it is, mm. right? Just fear, doom, gloom, anxiety violence, destruction, like you, you, you know, they'll, they'll lighten it once in a while with, Oh, here's one positive story to, but you know, nationally, locally, globally, it's just doom and gloom. I mean, look, look at this past year, right? Everything it's, you know, this many deaths, this many cases, this many, like there's, it's never how many recoveries, right? It's never a survival rate. It's never, you know, there's a lot, you, you could frame this whole thing in a much more positive way, hmm. but you know, it's doom and gloom and people are drawn to that for whatever reason. So that's, that's the first side of it. The second side of it is, and this is, this is quite, this is kind of deep, I think. And I think it's because I think a big part of it is that as human beings, especially men, I think men for all sorts of like biological, evolutionary, whatever reasons are drawn to, we all have like an innate draw and propensity for like, say sex and violence. Right. Mm -hmm. And in a, modern civilized society, right? We're no longer warriors and barbarians and hunters. And if you were to look at our ancestors, right, they'd be engaging in violence all the time, even if it's to, to take down a predator or to defend a village or to go to war or whatever. And so I think, you know, both men and women to a degree, but especially men, and obviously it's mostly men who are into that kind of music and entertainment in general, I think that's still very much within us, right? Mm -hmm. Even the, even the, the coolest, the, the most chill, kind, polite, friendly guy, right? That, that thing is still within them. So whether it comes out in music, video games, uh, films, etc., you know, it's just, to me, they're, they're all the same, right? Why, why do we like action movies where people are getting blown up and getting, getting shot and, you know, all that kind of stuff? I think, I think it satiates that sort of very uh, primal, that very primal desire without horrible negative consequences. Right. So yeah, it's almost someone, like Darwinian in a in certain respects. Yeah, I I think so. I mean, I've thought about it a lot, and I mm. think that's I think that's a big reason. I think that's like the core reason. And then I think you know there are some sort of social and cultural factors beyond that. But I think biologically, for we're we're just wired to like the same. You know, people like if you if you speak to most guys, like what kind of movies do they like? They like gangster films. They like you know action movies. They like they like this. They like that. And it's you know, 
it's also an escape as well. And I think, you know, our lives, again, we're, we're, we're very comfortable, right? Mm. <laughs> we, we live in the UK. It's chilled. It's comfortable. I don't need to worry about like, you know, some, some crazy, horrible thing out there. So it's like, okay, it's a, we, we can kind of escape that reality temporarily. I can go play, I can go play GTA or I can play Call of Duty and I can like be, you know, bam, I'm, I'm there like shooting people in the face. I'm there stabbing people. I would never dream of doing anything. Yeah. Would, would not dream of doing any of those things in real life, but it gets, it gets it out and it sort of satisf- satisfies that craving without it. And I think, I do think that like aggressive, violent, profane music does that. Mm. Um, I don't think most people think about it that deeply, but I think that happens. And then I think you get the supply and demand thing, right? Because then people see what sells. So artists keep making it because it works, right? If you put out a certain type of song and it gets a million views or a million streams or loads of people buy it or whatever, and it's got a certain message, then it's like, oh, well, that works. So Mm -hmm. if people, if there's a demand for something, people are always going to supply it, you know, from a moral level, I have my own thoughts and questions and concerns around that. And I do what I can with my own personal music and output to not be that. But I can also understand why it works and why people are drawn to it. So will you, when you're in the gym, will you still listen to that music? Yeah. Because it does, because it has that exact effect on you, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It won't be the only thing I listen to. Mm. And it's even weird with me. I mean, I can listen to stuff and, you know, it's, um, I, I, sometimes I listen to certain things and I'm like, I myself, I'm literally like, why am I listening to this? Right. I'm very, I'm very, co- I'm very, uh, right. I'm very like conscious of, it. I'm very self-aware of like, why, why am I even listening to it? Like, this is so, this is so ignorant. <laughs> like, yeah. This yeah, is yeah. so stupid. You know, I would not, if I had a child, I would not want them listening to this. Mm. You know? um, but I think for myself, at least personally, I'm sort of stable and well-raised enough that I can very much silo these things out. So right. like, I, like, I don't even swear. Right. The amount of swear words I've heard in music over the past 20 years, I don't even know how many expletives I've heard. It must probably be in the millions, but it doesn't influence me. Like it doesn't, it doesn't, I can listen to all that and I don't even cuss. Like I remember when I was in born, when I was in school um, and people used to hear something and they'd be like, dude, how do you not swear? Like with all this music you're listening to, I was like, it doesn't, it just doesn't affect me. Like it's just, it's just entertainment. It's like, it's, it's just, yeah, you're able to compartmentalize it. I can compartmentalize. And I do recognize mm. that I don't think everybody, I don't think everybody can do that so well. And I think that's part yeah. of the danger, especially if you're looking at, I don't know, young men who maybe aren't, haven't been raised that well or had that much parental supervision or haven't had their fathers around or whatever, and are maybe in certain environments. Then with someone like that, I think the music is never going to be the core of the problem, but I don't think the music, helps <laughs> right, i don't yeah. think it helps right i think there are certain places and communities where i'm like mm, i don't think that music is really i don't think it's helping the situation i don't think it's the root cause of anything but it, it can be helping so so for instance in certain um let's say certain societies where there's maybe a breakdown in a family unit mm-hmm. then you combine that with kids who are listening to that music playing those computers games that all sort of exasperates the issue yeah, and, exactly. and causes if, them if to go out and yeah, mirror well, it. Uh, yeah, well, I don't think it causes it, but I don't look. Let me let me put it this way. Like this is the, this is the most honest way I can put it. Mm-hmm. So, as an artist who generally makes positive and motivational and inspirational music, I have had thousands upon thousands of people tell me that my music makes them feel more positive, 
that it inspires them, that it encourages them, etc. So if that is possible, it's only logical and honest that it is possible for the opposite. Yeah. Right. So if, if I yeah. can put out, if I can put out positive music that inspires people in a positive way, then I can't really buy an argument that negative music or violent messages or whatever has no effect whatsoever. Cause you know, it, it does. And like we said, you know, if I'm, if I'm going for a run or I'm in the gym or whatever, it does pump me up. It doesn't make me violent, mm-hmm. but it does make me feel more aggressive. For sure. Certainly. It does make me feel more aggressive. And so I think there are certain people where, um, yeah, you know, they're already, they're, they're already on a certain path perhaps, but then it's, it's just a little bit of extra fuel on the fire. Um, and, and also, you know, the music comes out of the, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a vicious cycle, right? You know, if people are in that environment, a lot of the music like that comes out of those environments and then it sort of fuels it as well. So it, it's a, it's a bit of a vicious, it's a vicious cycle. So, you know, the point to break that cycle, if you're trying to, is not going to be the music. Um, it's going to be addressing the underlying issues, you know, mm-hmm. fatherhood and, you know, parental responsibility and personal responsibility. Um, but yeah, a lot of people don't want to have those conversations, but I'm, <laughs> I'm willing to, I think that's a big elephant in a room in the room in society. Well, that brings me nicely onto my next point. Have you always been comfortable with airing your opinions and views? And if not, what was the turning point? No, so it's a great question. Um, so personally, I've always been pretty open with my views and having discussions with people and, you know, debates and whatever on a personal level. So friends, family, all that. Mm. As a musician, for the first probably 10 years of my career, I always thought, you know what, I want to let me just be publicly apolitical. Okay. Right? Let me let yeah. me be publicly apolitical and not rock the boat. And I've got an audience and, you know, people have different views and beliefs and whatever. Let me not, let me not, um, risk what's the word polarizing people, Mm -hmm. right? Let me not risk polarizing people. And also let me not distract from my music. Um, the big turning point was actually 2018. Um, and I'd been observing the sort of social climate, cultural climate, political climate for a while. And I'd been following certain people, listening to certain podcasts, just seeing what was kind of going on from around, I don't know, I feel like stuff started to get weird around 2014, 2015. In some ways, like society just started to go start, start becoming increasingly weird in, in, many, in many ways. And so I'd been observing this. And then in 2018, I just reached a point where I felt like I couldn't be totally silent on everything. And I needed to, I wasn't seeing a lot of, I wasn't seeing and hearing a lot of voices that were saying my position or my beliefs or the, uh, just the other side of the argument on many things. It was like, you know, there was one narrative and that's all. There's no, there's no opposition. There's no counter narrative. Even in the cases where I think the counter narrative is a far more popular position in terms of being held by a lot of people than the one that's being pushed. So to give, to give an example, which might sound silly, mm-hmm. but it's a big one, right? Because this is about actual reality, right? So up until, I don't know, I feel like up until around 2013, 2014, you know, going out publicly and saying that there are only two genders was not controversial, right? Saying that there, there are two genders, male, female, man, woman, like that was not, that was not controversial. And, it, and, and it's still, that is still the position I imagine over 90% of the people in the world hold. 
but we've somehow reached the situation where, oh no, now that's controversial. Now you're a bigot or you're some other name, you're, you're something horrible if you don't believe that there are hundreds of different genders. And it's like, well, where did that all, where did that all come from? Like I've been around, I've been around for, you know, a couple of decades and my whole life, it was two, right? It was always two. And now you're sort of over the past five years, you're ramming it down everyone's throat that, oh no, like, you know, no, people can be non-binary and then people can also switch between them and people can be this and people can be that, or you can just make up your own one. And even, you know, when you're filling out forms, it always used to be male, male, gender, male, female, right? Two options. Um, and suddenly it's like, oh wow, there's this whole range of them, or you can add your own. And I'm like, wait, what's going on here? You know, so that's like one example. But, um, and then, then, then that has its own sort of downstream repercussions, which I was seeing. And so, which, which sort of plays into the you know, viral deadlift video thing that I did, right? Um, so I just started seeing all this stuff happening. And then um, I was having a conversation with someone on Facebook. And they basically, to put it simply, this was someone who was um, a student union president at one of the universities in the UK. And he basically said, he literally said that people like Zuby have views that are regressive and get people killed and he should not be allowed on university campuses. So all of a sudden, so I was like, wait, someone just said that someone like me, like I'm, I'm a moderate, reasonable, level-headed, polite dude. This person who's actually in a position of power does not think that I should be allowed on a university campus, right? Like I, I'm like, whoa, so is society shifting so far that now I, I'm, I'm a radical now, right? Like, I'm like, whoa, what is, what's going on here? So I think, um, funnily enough, I think that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back where I was like, okay, this is really getting gnarly. Like people need to, not just me, but people in general need to, you know, speak and talk and, you know, and, and also because people are also trying to shut down the ability for people to talk. So this is when all these people are, speakers are getting deplatformed from universities. People are getting censored. People are getting banned. People are trying to expand and create new laws to prevent people from, you know, essentially to muzzle people, to, to, to gag people from expressing certain views, et cetera. And I'm like, this does, and as someone as well who has a good, you know, not amazing, but a decent knowledge of history, mm-hmm. I'm like, this is not, this is not good. Like when you start seeing sen- mass censorship and deplatforming and people attacking the concept of free speech and people not even being able to agree on basic facts of reality and all, I'm like, this is not, this is not good. You know, this is not good. And just the kind of person I am, I, ha- I, can't, I can't just sit back and not contribute and, and not do anything. I'm like, no, that, that's how bad stuff always happens, right? Because people are apathetic and people don't want to do anything and people don't want to rock the boat. People don't want to upset anyone. People don't want to be non-politically correct, et cetera. So you can have like a very tiny minority of the population, which then ends up controlling. You know, you can have 5% of the population controlling the other 95% just because they've managed to strike that, that fear into them um, so that these 95% of people can't speak because they fear the consequences, whether that's getting kicked off social media or it's getting doxxed or it's someone coming for your job or someone, you know, sending a message to your employer saying like, hey, look at what this person posted. You should fire them, et cetera. Not getting access to university. All, all these kind of things that we're seeing. Can- cancel um, culture type thing. Yeah, cancel yeah. culture. Yeah, I, I saw it. I just saw it creeping up. Mm. You know, I saw, I saw it all creeping up and I was like, okay, I have to, you know, I don't want this to distract from my main thing, mm. but I, 
I have views on this. You know, I have views yeah. on this and I want to express them. And I want to allow other people to express their views, right? And like, I'm not mm. even saying, you know, everyone needs to agree with me mm. or everyone needs to, but, but if you don't agree with me, I'm not trying to silence you. I'm not yeah, trying to yeah. deplatform you. I'm not trying to get you kicked off. Like I welcome all viewpoints. I think in a healthy so-called liberal society, right? Like we're in the UK. We're not, again, I grew up in Saudi Arabia, right? So yeah. I'm in the UK, in the USA, et cetera. I'm like, wait, since when are British people and American people like opposed to free speech? Isn't that what these things are founded on? Free speech, liberty, freedom, et cetera. Um, so yeah, that, that's why, that's, that's a longer answer as to why I even kind of started dipping my toes into that. And then when I did, it really resonated. So right it sort of became a sort of positive feedback loop. I guess what, so when you first started doing it from the sounds of it, it was more of a reaction than anything else. There was no, uh, there was no strategy there. You had no idea that it would go this way and you would develop no. this huge following off the back of it. No, not because, because I feel like some people on social media mm. are controversial, uh, say controversial things just to be controversial, right? To antagonize yes, yes. for the sake yeah. of it, because on social media, that's what creates noise. Mm-hmm. so you it's very i could have a nuanced opinion i say yeah i understand what you're saying however i also perhaps think this but no one's mm-hmm. no one's interested in that they want something that's going to cut through the noise yeah yeah it's true but from your perspective it was just a case of like this is how i feel uh, i don't feel comfortable the way things are going so i feel like i'm going to voice my opinions yeah it was and the thing with uh, with social media as well especially twitter is it's um it's it's a very viral platform so you can, you can put out a thousand tweets, which don't sort of do that much. And then one, one just changes the game. Mm-hmm. So my first viral tweet actually was in, it wasn't actually the deadlift one. It was something in 2018. Um, and it was something about Kanye West and all the sort of political stuff that was going on in the US. And prior to that, most of my following was UK based, right? As a UK based artist, most of my following was in the UK. And this tweet I had went viral in America. It went viral in the US. So I started just getting thousands of followers from the USA. And that, that one tweet sort of really shifted my audience demographic. And then when I had another couple others, those then went viral, like they got retweeted by those people. So it, it just, I just started reaching a much wider, much wider type of audience. Um, and also an audience that was interested in, in different things as well. So Prior to that, it was, you know, people who were following me generally knew or were familiar with my music. But then all of a sudden I'm getting all these people who are, oh, wow, this person discovered me through a sort of socio-political commentary tweet, even though that's not my, that's not my main thing, mm-hmm. right? Or it certainly wasn't. Um, and so it kind of becomes, a, yeah, it, that, that, that just happens. And with me, I mean, look, like once in a while, I will very intentionally kick the hornet's nest, you know, maybe uh, like... Yeah. Why once every couple of weeks, I'll just be like, all right, I just want to, you know. Just because what you want to see how people react to it, almost <laughs> like as a, a psychological experiment or social experiment. Yeah, exactly. And maybe yeah. I have a bit of, maybe I have a bit of a, a twisted sense of humor as well. So I, I kind of find it quite amusing. Um, but most of the stuff I put out there, number one, I don't think, I think in a sane world, most of it isn't actually that controversial. Mm. Like it's, it's not really. Um, but I think, I think we've almost reached a point where rationality and common sense is quite controversial. Perfect. 
Hello, sorry to interrupt in the middle of this insightful conversation, which I'm enjoying, I'm sure, just as much as you are. But I need to give you guys a little reminder. Uh, if you like this conversation, this episode, if you like balancing acts in general, then please do subscribe to us, rate and review us because it makes the world of difference. And the more reviews we get, the more rates we get, the more people can discover the podcast and we can make it go viral, whatever that means. Okay, back to the chat. I've had tweets go viral where um, I'm like, I'm not saying anything that anybody should agree with or should even be remotely controversial, mm. right? So there was a time, um, I can't remember. I mean, this, this happens quite a bit on Twitter, right? But there, there was like, there, there was a mo. I can't remember exactly what happened, but a lot of people were like in certain circles of Twitter were just like kind of posting all these um, straight up like anti-white people tweets. Right. Just just tweets which were just like literally racist against like white people and just oh white people. this white. And I just tweeted something along the lines of like, you know, like racism is like bad in all directions. I don't care if it's like I will stand up against racism against a black person, just like I would a white person or a Jewish person or like it's it's the same thing. Like it's all the same thing. It's not suddenly OK because the person has less melanin. Like I'm not I'm not down with that, which is which should not be controversial. Right? There should be absolutely nothing controversial about me saying, you know what, guys, judging people and insulting them and attacking them based on their skin color is bad. Shouldn't, shouldn't be controversial, right? But that like blows up, right? And, and it's just like, what? Like, it, it's, such, it's, such an obvious, it's such an obvious thing, but like other people aren't saying it. And we're almost like living in this weird parallel reality where it's like, you know, people are saying one thing and then like they're, they're suddenly behaving like this and you're just there like, wait, I'm pretty sure that I'm fairly confident that like at least 90% of people actually agree with me on this. So why is it like Twitter is a little bit of a weird thing, right? Because <laughs> there's a lot of strange people on there, mm. but it's like, this, this is not a controversial statement, you know? Um, even my, my thing that went super crazy viral, of course, you know, my, my video where I, um, you know, I, I deadlifted and I said I broke the women's record because I identified as a woman, mm -hmm. right? The notion, the notion that a man <laughs> should not be able to simply say that he is a woman and then go and compete with them in professional sports, that is not, that should not be controversial. <laughs> We've known for millennia that there are differences between males and females, not just in human, not just in humans, in every species. Like we, we know this, there's a re there's a reason why sports are sex segregated to begin with. There's a reason why Anthony Joshua is not fighting against women, right? Like not, this is, this is not controversial. We know it, whatever. And then we're suddenly like, we've been gaslit into this world where it's like, Oh, that's so controversial now. And it's like, what do you mean? Like, it's not everyone. Everybody saying agrees with this. Like everybody mm -hmm. saying agrees with this. And the whole point of the tweet is to show the absurdity of it, right? Because I just say, oh, well, I'm a woman now. And suddenly, hey, I'm the British women's deadlift record holder. Like anyone can see, okay, like, you know, it's kind of, it's making, it's making an important point without, you know, in a satirical way. Um, and also without being, you know, attacking or being, you know, directly offensive to anybody, right? It's not- Did even, you get a lot of people- um react to that tweet who claimed to be offended and if so did you receive any tweets where you felt like okay that's uh oh, i'll take that on board as to why you might be offended by that not a single one 
not a single one. And the people who, you know, we live in this weird time where people think claiming offense makes them virtuous. And oftentimes people claim offense when they're not even the person who even has like a, they're not even in the group that they're sort of claiming to be offended on behalf of, shall mm-hmm. we say? So I did receive a lot of messages from people who are transgender, <laughs> who thought it was hilarious. Right? I don't think, I don't think, I, I think I received literally one negative piece of feedback from someone who was actually transgender. But there were a lot of people who were sort of like trying to speak on behalf of the so-called transgender community, which doesn't exist, by the way, like it's not a community, you know, and but they also couldn't even explain why they were, um, they couldn't explain why they were offended, right? They just felt like they should be, Mm. right? And also, it was funny, because of the way I worded the tweet, it was it was very much a checkmate tweet, because either, because I could call anyone who had a problem with it transphobic. Right? So I could use the game against them because I said, hey, for years, you've been telling me a woman, it, like, because if you talk to these people and you, you ask them, simple, simple question, what is a woman? They'll say, the normal answer is anyone who identifies as a woman. And I'm like, okay, well, I identified as a woman. So why are you now saying, like, if you now say that I'm not actually a woman, like by your own rules, you're being transphobic. So either you have to, you have to pick one, either... I'm a woman and I'm the deadlift record holder or I'm not actually a woman. And what you're saying is not true. I guess then, but then maybe their, their comeback would be like, but yeah, you're just claiming to be a woman for that short period of time. And then you go back to being Zuby, right? That's gender fluidity, right? That's the argument they've been making. You don't need to be, you know, on Tuesday, on Tuesday, Steve could be on Tuesday. You could be a woman on Wednesday. You could be back to a man or, you know, you could be a morning, a woman in the morning, woman and you know, man in the evening, gender fluidity, right? Like I, I'm, I'm, I've seen these conversations. I've seen these arguments. So I'm like, okay, I'm just using your logic. I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not believing in your logic, but I'm saying, okay, you, you've said these are the rules. So let's go. And let's, let's see where, let's see where this goes. Um, you know, how do you know someone's genuine? Who's, who's that, um, who's that actress? It was an Ellen Page who, you know, a few months ago decided that she's now a man named Elliot and everyone suddenly is, oh, Ellen Page is now a man, right? Suddenly, and I'm like, wait, hang on, can we ask some questions here, right? Like to me, this is like the biggest gaslighting that's going on, going on in modern Western society. It's like, wait, can we can we ask a question here? Like, what what does what does that even what does that even mean? Like what like when you say this person is now a man, like what does what does that mean? Like, look, I'm I'm very much like, yo, if you're an adult, you can identify as whatever you like to be or whatever makes you feel good or you're comfortable or whatever. But my problem is when you're trying to force that reality onto other people and or punish them for not accepting it. Right. So there'll be someone who would be mad that I even said Ellen page and that I said, she, they'll be like, Oh my gosh, how dare you? His name is Elliot. Mm. And I'm like, no. Right. And there are people who will, want, who will want to attack me for that because I'm not buying into the reality. And look, when it comes to everything, when it comes to most views, I'm like, look, people can generally, in general, like people can believe, people can generally believe, and as long as they're not directly harming other people, I like generally do what, what they want, right? I don't, I generally don't care. If, if you want to believe that the sky is in fact green rather than blue or gray, and that my hoodie, instead of being gray, you want to believe that it's purple, that's fine. But if someone is trying to convince me that the sky is green or that my hoodie is purple, and then they want to like punish me 
for not going along with it. I'm like, no, like we're going to have to draw a line there. Um, the same goes with everything, right? You know, I'm a, I believe in God. I'm a Christian and I have a right to believe what I have a ble- to believe, right? But I'm not going to go around beating people over the head with a Bible and trying to force them to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and, and Savior and, and threatening them if they don't, right? Because mm. that, that's, not how, that's not how society works. And that's not how freedom of thought, speech, and expression works. Like we can all explain our views and people can agree, disagree, talk about the merits of this, the, you know, every, we, there's over 7 billion of us. We're not all going to agree on everything. Um, but my sort of core fundamental position is just very much like, you know, like let people, so it's, a, it's a very libertarian position, actually. It's just like, yo, like people have a right to their own, their own thoughts and their own speech and their own expression and whatever. And, you know, if, if you disagree with someone, I would love for someone to give me a coherent explanation as to how someone can just, you know, one day magically switch genders just, just like that. I, I, I'd, I'd love to hear an explanation, right? I'd love to hear think, when... Talk, sorry, Tujab, but talk about yeah, li- libertarian, uh, you know, actually hmm. being actually quite libertarian. If we think about how humanity has supposedly evolved over time and we look Ooh. back and we, at one point, homosexuality was outlawed. You know, at, mm. some, at one point there was slavery, etc. Mm-hmm. And as we have progressed, these things have changed because sure. our society has become more liberal. Do you think perhaps then in some sense where we're at or where it's been in terms of transgender and that discussion mm-hmm. is just another step of that involvement? And then, and then in a few years no. we'd look back and no. say, okay, well, that was just part of that process. Why, no, why do you think that's different to what's come before in terms of what was once considered something that wasn't allowed or or, mm-hmm. or, or was prohibited from the mainstream, shall mm-hmm. we say, or from society, but is now welcomed and encouraged? Yeah, well, firstly, let me say I'm not trying to prohibit anything. And transgender people already have all the rights that everybody else does, and they should. And I have 100%. I don't care. I know, I okay. know more trans people than most people know. Most people don't know a single trans person. I actually that's that's, that's 99% of Zuby's <laughs> fan base. <laughs> I actually happen to know a few, right? And I would never, like, look, I'm... Everyone should have equal rights, period. So the things you, you were talking about, mm. th- those were people fighting to get equal rights, mm-hmm. right? Firstly, those were people fighting to get equal rights. Secondly, those were not attempting to distort objective biological reality, right? If a, if a bloke is sexually attracted to a bloke or a woman is sexually attracted to a woman, that is, that is that's objective reality. Like that's, okay, that's reality. That's what they are, right? If a gay man is attracted to a gay, like, that's just reality. Like, that's what it is. You're not trying to alter people's perception of reality. If I'm looking at someone and I can clearly see this person is male, this is a man, and you're trying to force me to say, no, it's a woman, then I'm like, no, right? That, that's, that's trying to force a different reality, right? Mm-hmm. That's trying to force me to play a game here. And I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not playing this game. If this person wants to live their life in such a way or whatever, I'll be just as polite and respectful and treat them just as fairly as I will anybody else, right? I'm not, I'm not in favor of any kind of discrimination, let alone violence or insults or attacks or totally against it, totally against it. But will I be like, okay, this person with a beard is and a deep voice and a male frame and a penis and testicles is actually a woman. I'm like, no, that's not a woman, right? They, they, you know, they can call themselves whatever they want, but, no, that's fine. And like people should be, you know, like 
I think the, the I think in a in a liberal society, look, the best the best you can do, the best you can do is offer as much as possible equality of opportunity, fair treatment, equal treatment under the law, etc. Um, but you cannot, but you can't force it, right? You 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 know you, you can't force people to, you can, you can't force the beliefs or force certain behaviors on certain people. Like you I were said, saying, you can't force their beliefs on other people. They're welcome to to be and do as they are. Yeah. But you don't want their beliefs. In yeah, and and this you. and this goes across everything. Mm. Like I said, yeah. this goes across everything. I think a great parallel is I don't know religious beliefs or political beliefs or social beliefs or cultural beliefs, right? Everyone has their own, even, even within the same religion, people have their own different ways of thinking about it and their own disagreements and their own understanding, et cetera. And in a free liberal society, you should be welcome to practice any or no religion that you want, right? But I would be, a, like, I'm a Christian and I would be totally opposed to it if the government wanted to put in a law like forcing people to convert to Christianity. I'd be like, wait, no, like, no, <laughs> like, yeah. like, no, right. That, that's mm. awful. Right. Like, no, just like, I wouldn't want them to force me to try, try to force me to convert to any or force me to believe something or like, no, that that's, that's the, that's the line that's being crossed. Right. And that's the line that's being crossed with a lot of this activism because it's not like a fight. Okay. We just want, you know, equal. If, if there were some law or something that were like directly, discriminating saying like okay you know this group of people can do this but this group can't mm. or like this then that's a different thing but actually for the first time in history and in one of the first places in the world we're actually in a position where i mean you can correct me if i'm wrong but i think if you were to look at the uk laws you would struggle to find anything that is you would not find anything that is directly discriminatory against any group whether that's men, women, black, white, Asian, Arab, straight, gay, trans, whatever, right? We, we've, we've, we've actually finally, it took a long time. <laughs> it took a very long time, but we've, we've actually reached that stage now. And I think some people haven't really realized that we reached it because it, 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 it's only in the past, you know, it's quite recent that it was reached. Mm. Um, but I think people haven't really realized, oh, actually, there is fair and equal treatment under the law does it mean does it mean in every single situation and every single individual is going to be perfect and there's no prejudices at all and there's no biases no human beings are flawed but at least like on a legal basis we've got okay the same rules are applying to everybody it's not like oh okay you know steve is a white guy so he can do this and i'm a black guy so i can't right there used to be laws like that right and it, yeah. it's like okay that's not that's not the case now okay uh, this person is straight, so they can do that. This person is gay, so they can't do that. This person is male, so they can do this. This person is female, so they can't. No, like those, those battles have been fought and they've been won. And I think now we're, we've kind of reached the stage where I think some people are kind of, like people haven't really realized it and, and they're still sort of swinging those swords and they want to march and you know, fight for something, but they don't really, they're not clear. They're not really clear on like what they're, what they're fighting for. You know, I've seen some people say like, you know, we're just fighting for equality. And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? Like be specific. Like what, what law do you want changed? What rule? Are you, are you referring particularly to sort of uh, BLM and what's happened recently there? Cause I, I, cause I know your view is somewhat different to say maybe the average 
black entertainer, let's say, because yeah. in the creative industries, it's more left-leaning. Not totally, but as, yeah. as a rule of thumb, it is more left-leaning yeah. in terms of political beliefs and ideologies. I wondered, has your, your views, and since you've become more outspoken, has that created any fallouts with fellow contemporaries in the creative world, and, uh, or even with friends? Mm-hmm. And, and if so, how have you dealt with that? Have you navigated through that? Yeah, that's, that's a good question, man. Um, in that one particularly, the answer is somewhat, somewhat. Um, and the way, I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that, and I feel like that in itself sort of proves my point with this whole, <laughs> with, that, with that whole organization. But um, yeah, I mean, it hasn't been like, it hasn't been sort of any like massive fallout or something. And most people who, most people who know me personally, like I've been, like I said, I've been having these conversations with people for, for years, right? BLM suddenly became popular again last year, but I mean, it's been around for five or six, I think it's been around for six years now. Um, and I've been aware of the BLM organization and movement for a long time. And my views on it are not, I'm, I know more about BLM than way more about BLM than most people do. Right. So my view is actually the, is, it comes from an informed place. Whereas a lot of people just discovered it last year and wanted to jump on a bandwagon because it's, it's well-branded. Right. No one disagree. It'd be like me starting a movement called, you know, don't kick babies. Right. No one wants babies kicked. So everyone's going to agree with it. Right. Uh, you know, DKB. Um, but the organization itself and its roots and its aims and its motivations and the reality of what it's doing, I'm not on board with a lot of it. Right. So and of course, it's very cleverly named so that if you question or don't support the movement itself, it sounds like you're disagreeing with the statement. Right. If I had a movement called don't kick babies. Um, and I had all this like stuff around it that has nothing to do with kicking babies. Um, <laughs> it has like a whole different agenda, but someone says, oh, they don't support, you know, they don't support DKB. I can be, oh my gosh. So you think we should be kicking babies? All right. How dare you? Right. You hate babies. And this is like a, it's a very juvenile trick, but it's quite effective on most people. But someone like myself just sees straight through it. So yeah, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm very, um, I know there are people who sort of lose, I've heard a lot of stories of people like losing friends or not speaking to certain family members, all that kind of stuff over politics, which, which is very sad, firstly. Like that's, I think that's very, very sad. Um, but in my case, the, I, the fallout's been very minimal. It's been very minimal in that regard. Um, there are it's, certainly it's, some people- It's challenging though, is it? Because it is, yeah. a lot of people attach political beliefs to, uh, to be a reflection of that, that person. Sure. So if you hold, let's say, if you hold conservative views, then you are a certain type of person. Mm-hmm. And it feels like it's more and more difficult to be able to have open conversations with people yeah. from opposing views mm-hmm. in a very um, logical way without emotions getting in the way. And I can understand why I do, mm-hmm. but it's just a very visceral thing, isn't it? People, yeah. people are attached to their own opinions. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to, to see how you've, you've gone about doing that. I mean, I, I listened to what you're talking about police brutality in the US and you're very data driven, you know, in your yeah. analysis of it. And, you know, I had some emotional reactions myself as someone that's more sort of maybe left leaning. And I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. but look at all the, the deaths. And it's, Yo, uh, yeah. let, let me say something as well. It's, it's worth saying that I used to buy into their narrative as well until I looked at the data. Right. So, right. You, so, I, I, so were, you, time, were so, you, you were much more what? So not, not 20, horrified, but you, you, you sort of went down that view. Okay. So around 2017. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know, around the time of, say, the killings of like, um, I don't know, you know, there was Eric Garner. I remember the Philando Castile one. That was a bad one. That was a really bad shooting. Yeah. Right. So I was, because especially here in the UK, you only hear about the, if you hear about police brutality or police killings in the USA, the only stories that ever make international news are ones where it was a white police officer and a black victim in dubious circumstances. Those are the only ones you hear about. Okay. So, however, for every single one of those, there are, say, three or four white people, white Americans, who are also killed by the police in dubious circumstances, but they don't make the news, mm-hmm. right? So, the news is filtering a certain narrative to you. So, if you just watch the news and you see the mainstream and you're seeing the stories and the hype and you're following things like BLM, right, it seems like the police is only, it's like, oh my gosh, they're, they're just like gunning down they're just gunning down black people. Like, what is this, right? They're just, you know, killing black men and occasionally black women because every name, right? People say, say their names. Every name you can probably say, Steve, is probably like, can you, can you name a white person who was killed by the police in America in the past five years? I mean, I know about the horrific uh, video that came out a few years ago of the guy that was drunk crawling on the floor in the hotel. Daniel Shaver. Daniel Shaver, yeah. Mm-hmm. The number of white people is about three to four times the number of black people, right? So sure, there's, there's still a disproportionality there. But the fact that you can't say a single person's name, that in itself, I'm like, well, there we go. But the disproportionality right? isn't that just a reflection of the, uh, the size of each, of, of each ethnicity oh, oh, in oh, that population? Oh, oh, I, oh, no, what I'm, what I'm saying is I'm, I'm aware that um, black people are disproportionately, as, as a percentage of the population, um, statistically, black people are disproportionately killed by the police. Right. In the yeah. So I, I'm sorry, I'm accounting for that because that's what mm-hmm. people will normally say. I'm accounting for, of course, there's, you know, crime rates and there's, there's a lot of other things to look at. But the fact that people, the average person doesn't know, you know, a lot of people could name like five plus names of black people killed by the police in the past five years um, in dubious circumstances, which is fine. But the fact that they can't name a single Latino person or a single white person or a sing- it's like, okay, well, that's now you're seeing the media filter. Now right. you're seeing where the, where the do you, narrative. Do you think that's in. partly to do with the fact that traditionally and historically the press wouldn't have covered those stories of black people getting killed by the police in the past, and now it's um, much more in the public consciousness, and so it's become people are more aware and it's being covered as a result. I, of that. I, I don't know. I think a lot of it. I think a lot of it is narrative. You also have to think, consider that um, of all the homicides in the you know of all the black people who get killed again in the U. Let's say you know we're talking about the USA, so. You know, what percentage of them are killed by police? It's not even 1%. It's not even 1%, right? It's a very, very tiny number. So if you're going to have a movement which is about Black Lives Mattering, and I totally am mm-hmm. on board with the statement from womb to the tomb, I agree with the statement that Black Lives Matter, um, then focusing on police shootings, you're already missing 99.9% of the issue, right? So I'm like, well, why? if, if, if it's about Black Lives Mattering, you know, last year, or, okay, so in 2019, I believe that there were 14, I think there were 14 unarmed black people killed by the police in 2019. I, think, I believe it was 14. Um, by the way, unarmed doesn't mean it's an un- unjustified shooting, but 14. Is that unarmed, uh, 14 unarmed people that w- were reported? Or no, no, those are the official, no, no, data, no, no, right, yeah. data, data okay. right? 14. Oh, yeah. Okay. There were 7,000, over 7,000 black people killed by other black people. Mm-hmm. 7,000. 14. Yeah. 7,014. Black Lives Matter. I'm like, okay, I see which of these is the bigger problem. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying those 14 don't matter. 
but I'm saying, okay, if I'm, if I'm like a, someone, a problem solver here and mm-hmm. I'm trying to solve an issue, I'm like, yo, can we talk about this? Like, this is where, if I had a movement called Black Lives Matter, it, the police are going to be like very low on the, on the scale of what I'm talking I'd, I'd even be talking about like heart disease. I'd be talking about diabetes. I'd be talking about people's diets, people's lifestyles. I'd be talking about general homicides. I'd be talking about car accidents. I'll be talking about a lot of other things. And the fact that it's just this one very myopic and tunnel narrative, I'm just like, yo, if you actually believe that statement you're saying, if you actually believe that Black Lives Matter, then why are you only focused on 0.1% of the things that kill black people, right? Mm-hmm. What, you what think there's a possibility, we... though, for it to be a domino effect. And once people become empowered, then they move on to the next thing. I don't think so, no. And, okay. and it hasn't worked. The thing is, it hasn't worked. What's BLM achieved? What have they achieved? They've been around for six years. What's it achieved? It's made people feel good. You know, it's made people feel good putting up the hashtag and marching on the street and wearing a T-shirt or whatever. But in terms of tangible results, you know, I'm not, maybe there's something I've missed. But what I've seen, in fact, is it's driven more, I've seen, I think it's, it's driven more problems. I mean, if you look at the summer last year after, you know, George Floyd, George Floyd, the George Floyd killing was horrible. I spoke out about that before I even knew the guy's name. Um, but in the aftermath of it, how many more black people got killed in those riots? Hmm. More than a dozen more black people got killed as a result of the George Floyd protests and riots. So it's like, what, what is going on here? Like, and, and people don't want to talk about that. Right. People don't want to talk about those deaths because it doesn't fit the narrative. Right. It doesn't go along with it. And it's like, okay, so you've now turned one death into 15. Mm. And I'm like, yo, you know, do people care about the slogan and feeling good or do people actually care about black lives? Like, which I one guess is it? some people would then maybe argue that how would you explain how the police recently treated protesters who uh, marched on the Capitol building on the Capitol building and how they would have treated BLM protests far more harshly under the same circumstances. And how isn't, many, isn't how that many, an example of the sort of thing that they're trying to achieve or how many BLM protests, be- how many BLM protests were there last year? Hundreds? I don't know the answer. Hundreds. Right. Right. Um, hundreds over the course of the summer in the wake of George Floyd. Right. Yeah. How did the police treat them? It seemed pretty heavy-handed from footage that, that I'd seen. In many cases, it wasn't. In Seattle, they let them set up a, their own flipping autonomous zone for several weeks. Um, certainly, I don't believe, I don't believe a, as far as I'm aware, I don't think in that entire, in those dozens, hundreds of, ri- of riots and protests, I don't think a single person, I don't believe a single person was killed by police because I'm pretty sure I would have heard about it if somebody was. Um, so I, yeah, I don't, I don't buy the argument of like, oh, if this was BLM, they would have treated them totally different because we have data from just last year, multiple sources of data showing that, oh, the, the police were not incredibly harsh on the BLM protesters and even rioters. People were looting and rioting and burning down entire cities last year. Mm-hmm. And suddenly people have an amnesia about that. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't buy the narrative that they would have treated them differently. And a lot of BLM protesters aren't black anyway. So that's all. <laughs> that's, that's true. That, that is true. That, that, that again is like a... Do you get any pushback from other black entertainers or just not entertainers, I guess, mm. friends, et cetera, who are BLM <coughs> uh, supporters? Do they find what you say offensive in, in any shape or form? And if they do, how does the dialogue uh, mm. progress between you both? Yeah, sure. Like, I'll be honest. Look, I think last summer people, people were just emotional. 
Yeah. Right. Like yeah. a lot of people were just really emotional last summer and they got wrapped up in things. People had been locked in their houses. The George Floyd thing happens. People, people were just, I think, I think like there was an emotional global peak that just hit sort of maybe like May to July last year where people were just really in their feelings, let uh-huh. me say. Yeah. Um, and so in that moment, yeah, I did have people, you know, friends, family, whatever, who were like, you know, really didn't appreciate or like what I was saying. Funnily enough, you know, people can really refute it because I'm, I'm the data guy, right? I'm talking about facts and people are telling me about feelings. And I'm just there like, yo, um, this is the situation, right? And look, I understand the emotions. I do understand the emotions. I'm just, I'm not a very emotional person. My personality type is not very emotional. And so I get where people are coming from, but at the same time, I'm like, yo, and even, and the thing is, even the disagreement is not, I think the biggest disagreement is whether, you know, I think this thing is doing more, you know, I think the biggest debate is, okay, is all this stuff, is it doing, is it doing good or is it doing harm? Mm-hmm. Right? Not, not in terms of feelings, in terms of tangibles, all of this stuff that's going on, all these people out in the street, you know, of course there are people who are, who are peaceful, right? They're peacefully protesting. And then there are people who are destroying shops and who are setting cars on fire and who are looting and who are, you know, committing violent crime, et cetera. You know, is this, how does this bring George Floyd back? Or how does this stop an incident like that happening again? Right. To me, I'm like, this is doing more harm than good. And then there are other people, you know, who will be of the opinion, well, you know, well, you know, they may feel like it's doing more good than harm, but I'm like, okay, well, show me the evidence for that. Again, we're, we're now six months past this. We're now six to eight months past all this. It's like, okay, all that stuff that happened last year in the summer, what came of it? And I'm open to ideas. If, if there's something that happened and um, someone can tell me, I'm open to it. All I saw is, okay, like more people got killed. A bunch of businesses got destroyed. Um, people put BLM hashtags in their bios, companies and corporations and whatever, you know, put out little statements and people posted black squares on Instagram. You know, what's been the impact on racism? What's been the impact on police brutality? What's been the impact on investment in those communities? What's been in it? What's been the impact, right? And, you know, I'm kind of like, yo, I don't really care how people feel. Like what's been the, what's been the impact, right? And the, the way I view it is, you know, that, say, that thing that happened in, um, in Capitol Hill, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you know this, like wh- the woman who got killed was one of my followers. Right. Oh, wow. So like, yeah, the woman who got Ashley Babbitt, right. She was, she, she followed me on, on social media. And so even with that, I saw that and I was like, yo, what is like, I, I, I was, I saw that. Like I wasn't following it super hardcore on the day, but I was like, yo, what's the, what's the intention here? Right. Like what's the goal here? What's the purpose? I'm, I'm very much like a results and purpose person. I'm like, what are Management you guys, consultancy kicking yeah, in? Yeah. But I'm like, yo, what are you, what are you guys hoping to achieve? Like yeah. again, emotionally, from a raw emotional perspective, if someone, if someone genuinely believed that the election was undermined and was stolen from, I would, I can, from that premise, I can understand the emotion, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, number one, I, I, I haven't looked in, into this deep to know, like, to what degree some of those claims are, you know, untrue or true or whatever. But beyond that, how is going down to the Capitol building and breaking windows and invading the place and how is that going to, how's that going to help? Like I can see, like, I can see the harm. I can see the damage that's going to get done. And now, you know, I think four people got killed, including I think a couple of police officers, but it's like, well, what, what was achieved? And the answer is nothing, right? No, nothing, nothing good came of that, right? Nothing good came of it. And it's like, okay, so 
no, like, you know, that's not to me. I'm just like, no, that's, that's not the way forward. If you, if there's a particular demand, I mean, look, we can look back at the, um, you know, we talked before a little bit about, you know, some of the civil rights stuff. Right. And I think a lot of people now sort of feel like they're, they want to be part of a civil rights kind of movement. But if you look at the civil rights movements, you know, the, the different phases of it, there was always a clear goal, right? There was a, there was a clear goal. Okay. Suffragette movement, women, women want the right to vote. This is the purpose of the movement. If they're having a march, if they're having a protest, what, this is the goal, right? This is the goal. This is what we want. These are our demands, right? And it's clear, okay? Um, you know, we want black people to be treated equally under the law, right? We don't want, we don't want segregation. We want, um, you know, we want our votes to be counted. We want, you know, like we just want to be treated equally. C- clear goal, right? When gay people wanted the right to, uh, to get married. Clear goal, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not... It's very clear, right? This is what we're campaigning for. This is what we're protesting. This is what we're pushing for. This is what we're lobbying politicians about. Whereas now it's just like, I, I, I don't know, like pe- people are, I, it needs to be more laser focused. If it were like, okay, this is a, even, even okay, say, say, say okay, so after the, after the uh, even if we're, we're talking about some police brutality, police killings, et cetera, right? If it were like, okay, we want to, we want to get rid of qualified immunity of police officers, or we want to ban chokeholds. I don't think that's a good idea, by the way. But if it were just like, whether or not I think it's a good idea or not, if it were like, okay, this is, this is the target. We think that um, we want the police, we, we think rather than getting trained for, I don't know how long police in America are trained for, but maybe, okay, we want, we want the bar for police officers to be higher, or maybe we think every year they should have to have a psychological test or whatever it is, or they need to do more, spend more time in the communities that they're policing. I don't know what the demand is, but there needs to be a clear- A specific goal, yeah. Yeah, a clear and specific one. I mean, there was the whole defund the police, terrible, terrible idea, defund the police. It's like, what? Some people saying abolish the police. It's like, right, so you want more black people to get killed, right? If you abolish the police in some of these communities, murders are gonna go through the roof, right? And it, it's such a crazy, like the one demand that was became the tagline was the most insane one, right? We mm-hmm. want to abolish the police. It's like, what? Like it doesn't even, it doesn't even make sense. So I just think if people want to, if people want to do good rather than feel good, then they need to be more, they need to be more laser focused. And I, look, I know people don't, people don't like it when I say this stuff. Cause they're like, Zuby, you're too cold and rational. And I'm like, yo, like, <laughs> that's how, that's how stuff kind of gets done though. Right. You know, like mm-hmm. emotions are, I understand emotions, but emotions don't, they can be the fuel, but if it's just emotions flying out everywhere, outrage, anger, rage. That clouds it, judgment. It, yeah, it clouds judgment. And it makes people behave in, in, in silly ways. In irrational you know? ways. It, yeah. it makes people behave in silly ways. And we, we've seen this, you know, like that storming of the Capitol or whatever. I was like, this is dumb. Like, this, this tweet from you, which is a departure from what we're talking about, but I'm, okay. <laughs> trying, trying, to fr- I'm trying to find a segue. Sure. In a way, I think there's like you said, most people aim too low. It's a crowded market. It's better to aim oh. high because there's less competition there. If you understand this properly and internalize it, then it will change your life. Could mm. you expand on that? What you mean oh, by yeah. it? Yeah. Um, yeah. What I mean is that, hmm, how would I, how would I explain this one in more depth? Yeah. I think that Look, firstly, the first part, like I think people just, a lot of people aim too low just in general in in their life, whether that's with their, I don't know, people have a lot of potential and a lot of people don't really strive that hard to fulfill their own potential physically, financially, relationships, you know, giving back to their community, spirituality, whatever it is. 
a lot of people are quite happy to just, I don't know, kind of do the minimum to do the minimum, minimum to get by and not really push themselves outside their comfort zone. And I think what I mean is because the majority of people actually do that to, to some extent, by, I think people always think that by setting your goals higher, that there's sort of more competition. And what, what I was saying in that is actually, it's, it's kind of the opposite. To, to give a really crude example, <laughs> well, not, 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 not crude, but like maybe, maybe a humorous example would be like, I don't know, um, the girl who's like quite pretty, but doesn't look like unattainable probably gets like hit on by loads more guys than the girl who's like absolutely stunning, so stunning that she intimidates and scares guys away. Right. Mm -hmm. But most people will be like, oh my gosh, there's no way. There's no way I can get like that girl. Like she's, she's too hot. She's out of my league. Right. So let me, let me aim lower, but actually by aiming lower, they're, they're now competing with like all these other guys for her attention and she's being flooded with attention. Meanwhile, that girl there, it's like, oh, actually she's scaring all these dudes off. So she's not, you know, getting that much attention. So that, that's kind of like an, an analogy. Um, although it's actually real, but, um, it's an analogy. Um, but pe- it's, it's like that with a lot of other things. If you kind of aim where everyone else is aiming, then you actually, it's actually way more competitive there. It's a, a job that's, I don't know, a job that is like sort of very middling, there's going to be way more people applying to that job Mm. and a job that's like, we want a CEO, Mm -hmm. right? That CEO job, very low competition. You know, competition is a higher caliber, but you're not going to have that many people going for it, right? I imagine a job that's paying 25 grand a year has way more offers and way more competition than a job that's paying 150 grand a year. Yeah. Right. I guess the difference is, is though for the for the hundred and fifty grand a year job, people have to be okay to do the ten years of grind and to yes, give out the yeah. CDs in the rain. Yeah. That's the hard part. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's, it's um so that tweet was sort of trying to encapsulate encapsulate that general idea of like you know what you you may as well you may as well aim aim high because it's not as it may not be as unattainable as you might as you think as as you might think and the field is not as crowded as you might think because most people most people disqualify themselves from opportunities before the opportunity disqualifies them that would actually be a good tweet um because yeah pe- people disqualify themselves they're like no i i, I can't i can't get to that level they talk themselves right? out so, of it yeah i'm i'm not even going to i'm not even going to try i'll aim yeah. here yeah right? yeah and everyone else is doing that so if you're like no actually I want that spot. Like, I want to go for that. Sure, you have to put in the work and you might not get it, but you know what? If you don't get it, you'll still probably end up there, which is still, mm. higher, than, still higher than you know, what you would have aimed at otherwise. Yeah, and I think that's, it definitely reflects your, your mindset. And this, I think what comes across is that you're, you're someone with, uh, with original, but in, you're an independent thinker. And, and therefore, it doesn't surprise me that you're also a Bitcoin investor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Where, where did you get into early doors and are you, are you someone that is excited by blockchain technology and what it has to offer in terms of disrupting the economic system? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, very much so on all fronts. So, um, yeah, I've been in Bitcoin for uh, since 2017. Um, I heard okay. about it earlier than that. I've been, I've been in an investor since 2017. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, Bitcoin is, uh, I'm super passionate about it. I, I, I've just done a collaboration with a 
the Bitcoin movement clothing company. So okay, we've got, we've, we've we've done a whole line of merchandise. Um, but yeah, I think um, yeah, I think Bitcoin is going to do for the money and financial system what the internet has done for information. Okay, that's what I see, or or maybe what the smartphone or mobile phones in general have done for communication. That's where I see Bitcoin going in the next uh, decade plus. I think um, I think it's still, despite the fact it's, I mean, the whole crypto market cap is now over a trillion as we record this, trillion dollars. But um, yeah, I, I see, I mean, I look, I'll be straight up. I think Bitcoin, I think a single Bitcoin is going to be worth over half a million dollars within the next 10 years. Um, I think that the market cap of Bitcoin itself could be, I don't know, anywhere from five to $15 trillion. So I know right now as we record this, it's probably hovering, hovering somewhere around $37,000. Mm. But um, I think it has a, a ton of room to grow. It's still very, very early. And I think um, the, the philosophy of it, um, the way it works as a store of value, decentralization, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, very, uh, it's very, very aligned with what I believe and as someone who's just very interested in technology in the future and who studied computer science and all that, um, from, a, from every standpoint, from a technological standpoint, an investment standpoint, um, a socio-political standpoint, I'm just very on board with Bitcoin. It's something I've studied to some degree probably every day for the past three and a half years now. So when I talk about it, I'm not kind of just uh, sort of throwing out random numbers or like, it's, it's like, okay, this is where I think this is going. Um, and, and because of my age as well, I've also seen, I've seen the adoption curves for a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. So I remember when people talked about the internet, the way they're talking about Bitcoin. Right. Right. I remember remember when people talked about email. I remember when people, I remember when people thought having an email address was pointless, Mm. right? Why? Because, oh, well, no one else is using it. Right. I remember when people thought having a, I've been on Facebook since 2004. I was one of the first people on Facebook. I remember when people thought having a Facebook account was pointless. Why? Because no one else is using it. Oh, and it's a little bit slow. It's not perfect, right? The way people talk about Bitcoin now, oh, you can't buy anything with it. It's, it's, it's a little bit slow. Uh, not everyone's using it. It's, it's not, you know, I'm like, okay, I've, I've heard all this before. Yeah. And I understand the use case and the value proposition. I mean, look at how connected we are as a world now. I mean, it's crazy that, I mean, if you want to send money to someone in the USA or in Philippines, why should you have to pay like, like why it shouldn't be, um, it shouldn't be expensive or remotely complicated. And you shouldn't really have to go through a middleman to do it. And you shouldn't have to convert currencies. It's like, why we have global everything else. Like, why don't we have global money? Hmm. Right. That doesn't mean that it totally supplants national currencies. And I don't think Bitcoin's going to do that, by the way, I don't think Bitcoin's going to replace the dollar or replace the pound, but, um, I think it's going to, I think it's more going to replace or largely supplant gold and some other investments like that and act as a store of value. Um, and yeah, I just think like if I wanted to send, say I wanted to send money to a cousin in Nigeria, even in 2021, like through normal means it's, it's a pain in the butt. Mm. Like it's a, it's a real pain. Like with Bitcoin, it's just like, Oh, what's your Bitcoin address? Boom. Gone. Done. Right. You just pay like the small fees. It's gone. There's no currency conversion. You don't need to wait five days for your bank to sort it out. You don't need to put in a sort code, bank account number, IBAN number, name, address, like all of this stuff. I'm just like, it makes sense to me. 
it, it mm. totally makes sense. And I'm just like, and it's, and most money is inflationary. Bitcoin is deflationary. We already know how many Bitcoins are ever going to exist. Um, and then, as you know, if you've got a deflationary currency from an investment standpoint, as the, the supply can't increase. So if demand increases, what happens? Price goes up. So to me, as, a, as an investment, it's like, it's a no brainer to me. Um, it's a no brainer to me personally. Once this podcast release, watch surge in Bitcoin prices increases. <laughs> everyone starts investing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, do your own. Do your own do, research. Yeah, do diligence. Um, yeah, don't don't invest more than you can afford to lose. Yeah, and be careful of those altcoins. Yeah, you can get burned hard on this. A couple more questions. I know I've taken up a lot of your time, but it's been That's fascinating good, uh, talking yeah, been to you. Condo. What do you do outside of work? What does Zuby do to relax, take his mind off everything that he's doing career-wise? Man, not enough. Um, normally, I mean, normally I travel quite a bit. Okay. Um, normally I go to the gym a lot. <laughs> mm. um, normally. I remember uh, you were ripped. Like when we met 10 years ago, you were, and I think you were even talking about the fitness book then. Really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been training most of my life. Yeah. I started training when I was 16. So, you know, I've, I've been in the fitness world for a while. So the book was inevitable. Um, yeah. You know, obviously normal things like seeing friends and family and all that. Um, but a lot of what I do, I do really, you know, I, I do in like, of course I love making music and listening to it. You know, I enjoy, um, I enjoy read. I read, a, I read quite a lot of books. I listen to podcasts. I make podcasts. I have a lot of conversations. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I, that I'd like to do is, is linked to my career in a way, I guess, because, because you're so passionate about it. Your, your work yeah. is your play. Exactly. You know, um, I was in the studio yesterday. I recorded six new songs. I was working really hard technically, but it didn't, it didn't really didn't feel, feel like that. it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, didn't feel like it. Um, even the social media stuff, like when I'm on social media, like I don't always enjoy it, but I generally enjoy it. I like engaging with people and you do know, you schedule in time to do social media every day. Do you have a quite a um, strict schedule? No, I don't. I don't schedule it. Okay. Um, I'm very ad hoc, and I and I don't schedule. I don't schedule posts either. Like everything okay. I do, like I always shoot from the hip. I just right. like to. I have a thought. Like after this conversation, I'll probably like I'll have some thought, and I'll just feel like, boom, like put put that out there, and uh, you know, see what it does. So um, yeah, those those are the things. Like a few of the things I'd normally do to relax a bit more are currently uh, are currently unavailable due to the whole situation. Sure, but um, yeah, I look forward to being able to travel again and hit the gym hard again and all that I'm, I'm staying in shape but um yeah it's not the same as pumping the iron and hitting the deadlifts and squats and all that for sure okay two more questions one is um are there any books that come to mind that you've read over the years that have inspired you or had a big impact on you in some shape mm. or form yes absolutely um i'll give three actually i'll give three number one is um the 10x rule by grant okay. cardone okay um that had a big influence on me um, another one is The Millionaire Fastlane by MJ DeMarco that okay. really changed the way that I thought about like money and finance and entrepreneurship and stuff. And then a third one from a more sort of socio-political cultural angle, a book that I really wish everyone would read is uh, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. It's called The okay. Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. So a lot of the stuff that we've actually kind of been talking about, it talks a lot about, you know, why are some people conservative? and some people liberal. How do liberals view the world? How do conservatives view the world? How do libertarians view the world? What moral, it turns out that people actually have different moral frameworks that they apply to the world. So that's why if, uh, you know, even someone more left-leaning and someone more right-leaning, it can, it can sometimes feel like people are talking 
like that because the the very foundations that um that they're working off of are there's an overlap but there's also a difference mm. and so that book really like opened my made me like it made so many things click it made okay. so many conversations i've had in the past or things just go okay i get that now so whether someone wherever someone sits politically whatever someone's religious beliefs or whatever if you're someone who finds like it hard to understand the other side then that's a fantastic book for just like clicking it together and being like ah okay now i understand the whole world better and you can also have healthier conversations and be more be more empathetic and sympathetic to other positions even if it's not your own personal position it'll at least help you understand where it's coming from okay great fantastic thank you for that and final question to you is what does the idea of balance mean to you or not Oh, balance. Um, hmm. You know, I think uh, having a, I think we all want to have a healthy balance and equilibrium of all the different things in our life that are needs and wants and which provide us with health, wealth, and happiness, right? Um, I think that's what it is. So not being so, um, how would I put it? No, I think an imbalanced life would be where one of those three things is being massively compromised or not being fulfilled, perhaps perhaps because someone is pursuing one of them too hard, mm-hmm. right? So if you're trying to maximize your wealth, you may be sacrificing your health and your happiness. If you're trying to maximize your happiness, you may be sacrificing too much of your potential uh, wealth and even health. You know, if you're trying to maximize your health, you may be sacrificing some wealth and you may be sacrificing some happiness as well, right? If I, if I go full bodybuilder mode and I just want to eat uh, ch- chicken, chicken breast and chicken breast and broccoli and brown rice every day, then, um, you know, I'm, I can probably get in even better shape, but am I enjoying, <laughs> am I, am I enjoying life? If I, if I never go out or see people or whatever, cause it might interfere with my diet or my sleep, you know, I'm sacrificing too much. But then similarly, if someone's just going on benders all the time, trying to have as much fun as they can, then um, yeah, they probably won't be in the best in the best position with their health or their wealth. So I think um, you want to try to balance those three out in a healthy way. Fantastic, that's a really great answer, Zuby. Thanks so much. Where can people follow you, find out what you're up to, etc.? Where's the best yeah. place to go? Sure, um, I'm on all social media: Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. All of them at Zuby Music, Z U B Y Music. And um, you can find my music and my podcast on all the major platforms, iTunes, Spotify, et cetera. Just search my name, Zuby, and you will find me. Brilliant. Zuby, thank you so much for your time. It's been great welcome, speaking Steve. with great you. Great to talk. And there we have it, Zuby in the building. Told you it was a fascinating conversation. So many takeaways there. Zuby has proven is possible to create a career a successful career as an independent artist and you can apply that same model to comedy writing filmmaking i think it's um it's something that's transferable in terms of how he has started in one area and then pivoted to create income sources or revenue from all these different strands so i hope that was inspiring and in next week's episode i'm joined by comedian and writer athena cableno We have a fascinating conversation covering a load of ground, so make sure to check that one out. And as always, guys, if you like this episode, if you like Balancing Acts, this series, if you have found it to be useful at all, then please do rate and review it on Apple. That would be much appreciated. And until next time, see you later.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.